0: Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name's Mark Lathwaite, and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Boys, we are back for yet another podcast. Uh, Mike, uh, are you well? Have you been busy?
1: I am. Happy New Year to you both and everyone listening. Um, I'm very busy actually. The uh, the marathon to Saab is taking up most of my time. I'm up to about 15 hours a week for that bad boy um but obviously the two jobs endurance physio teaching is picking up so i'm still seeing clients and sports injury fix we've just relocated into some new offices and uh full steam ahead for this year so yeah a couple more days in the week will be handy
0: and uh ian yeah are you uh back into the swing of things now you busy
2: yeah definitely back into the swing uh yeah busy with research and teaching at work and then uh yeah training wise just Starting to get more focused, ready to building towards London Marathon uh, as sort of main A goal for the spring before then switching for the Lakeland. Um, Yeah, that's the main focus now, getting the uh, speed back in the legs.
0: Yeah, yeah, super, super. Well, before we go into our podcast this week, I've got a new feature. I need a jingle though, to be honest. I'll have a jingle for next week, you know, I can put a little bit of music in there and um, My new feature is Tweets of the Week. Right. So what I'm going to do is challenge you. Uh, I'm going to challenge you to explain in less than one minute uh, what you've tweeted about this week. Now, um, I'm going to come to you first, Ian. So, Mike, you've got off the hook there. You've got a minute to plan. Nice. (laughs) So in less than a minute, Ian, let's have your Tweets of the Week.
2: Yeah, some of my favourite tweets, again, have been around the uh, the Nike Vaporfly, um, and there's been, obviously, some reports in the media suggesting it was going to be banned, and then it wasn't going to be banned because some of the technical report was coming out. But my favourite one of all was by a guy called uh, Kaiser Bengt, who said, uh, yes, definitely, we should go back running naked and for sure barefoot on grass or gravel, but more seriously, surface and shoes and other tech have already made a big difference. So I think his point was, which is one that I like to make on this, is that yeah, you know, a lot of the advocates for banning the uh vapor fly ignore the fact that there's been lots of other factors that are uh, technological factors that are influencing performance, such as track, um, rebound and different performance and uh, enhancing uh, technologies. Um alongside that one, um very popular in the media today, some things that have been retweeting about the race between Kenanisa Bikili uh, and Kip at the London Marathon, I think that's gonna be a brilliant matchup. So I've been retweeting quite a bit about that because it would be interesting to see how those two 201 marathons uh, match up against each other. And then there was another one, uh, a blog uh, on Masih Bala, uh, a 143 800 meter runner who's been tested positive and uh, held in possession of EPO. Um, there was a case from Cass uh, on his appeal, which uh, they upheld. The decision, uh, but there was lots in that blog about, um, the lengths athletes and agents go to to hide doping. So there was details about Jammered and, uh, and how he'd been hiding, uh, syringes in different bins and breaking down all the equipment they've been using. So fascinating insight into the world of doping. Don't know so, if that's a minute, but I
0: didn't ever watch. I'll be honest, but uh, <laughs> for me, that seemed quite long. But, so, uh, we'll come back for next week.
2: I'll, I'll try better next time. I'll try harder.
0: Uh, Get your watch ready, Ian. Uh, Mike, coming to you. 60 seconds. Tweet to the
2: week. I'm clicking my stopwatch now.
1: Um, I've got four. So the first one was one of my own that I pushed out, which was about uh, sleep. So just uh, good studies coming out showing that people who sleep less than eight hours a week have a 1.7 times greater injury risk than those who sleep eight or hours or more. Uh, the take home from that really is it doesn't matter if you're not getting eight hours, but for whatever your norm is, a little bit more is probably good. Um, then I put a little video out which was my four top tips for anyone wanting to go on a winter training camp. That's on Twitter if you wanted to watch that one. A really good one came out, was shared this week uh, by Tom Goom, the running physio. There's a really small study of just six people coming out uh, that's proven in this small sample that marathon running isn't harmful for your knees and the six participants in this study had completed a thousand marathons each. So, a bit of survivor bias, but uh, a really nice little study to have a read of. And that is 58.78
0: seconds. Boom! Would have been 56 in the vapour flies. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> on winter training camps, I must say, in four weeks' time, I'm going out to Lanzarote for two weeks. We've got two camps a week each, and they're for the full two weeks. So, uh with on, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember the dates now. It is the 15th to the uh, 22nd of Feb, and then another group flying on the 22nd to the 29th. Two weeks in the sunshine. Come on. So yeah. I nice. um, can't wait to get to Lanzarote. Um, my tweets of the week. Have you got stopwatch on it? Ready? Go. Yeah. I only have three, to be honest, because I'm not tweeting that much. My first one was... Um, Working on the, uh, in my aero position on my time trial bike, I am notoriously bad at riding on my road bike, and then when I race triathlons and I ride in the aero position, I'm really uncomfortable in my power drops, and the reason I don't practice in the time trial position is because I don't like seeing my power dropping, so it's unfortunately it's ego, I like to hit big numbers, so I ride in a position that's not race realistic, so I'm doing more and more work this year in my aero position, which I know I need to do. Tweet number two is that I ordered uh, some swim boys for epic events and I thought they were five foot and they arrived and they're five metres. So I inflated this massive duck in the lockup and it is huge. And uh, I put that out on Twitter and sadly uh, that received more comments and likes than any other tweet I've ever put out there, which shows the quality of my normal tweeting. And my last one is the recce Weekend. I'm up for the recce Weekend this weekend in Ambleside for the Lakeland 100, running from Ambleside to Coniston and... Uh, I just uh, remember last year people turning up at the village hall where we'd teach them navigation and they turned up at the village hall and said, oh, this place is hard to find, isn't it? And I thought, well, this isn't going to go well. We're going to send them out in the dark on the mountains in about three hours time. And that's my Tweets of the Week. Scores on the board.
1: So some performance enhancing drugs are required because that was one minute,
0: 18.3
2: seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: No way. I'm devastated by that I'm glad no one signed me. Okay. Okay. We'll work on that for next week. Work on that for next week. The topic for today's podcast is the use of data and sports science in endurance sports. So when I did my sports science degree, which was nearly 30 years ago now in Liverpool, um, we were very much I suppose, told that we were the educated ones and coaches were very old school and they didn't understand science and they didn't understand physiology and we were there to educate them and help to ad- them to advance their training methods and work with them. Now there has been a, a big boom in sports science over the last 20, 30 years and I'm, uh, you know, over well, the last couple of weeks when I've been thinking about it, I'm not really sure how much that sports science is really applied on a basic level and also what I see a lot with the elite athletes is that they're still doing the same coaching principles and still doing the same training plans they were 20 30 years ago and some of them are still with the same coaches which makes me question whether we're right in the first place now with this boom in sports science and data I also wonder whether it has become a smoke screen to some effect so when, with all of this stuff to look at and all the data it generates and all the other things you can graph and all the tools you can buy now to, to help you train. And I wonder whether our attention is shifting towards that when our attention should be on those key basic coaching principles, which a lot of the elite athletes have been following in the same way over the last 20, 30 years. And is it, is it acting as a distraction rather than a benefit for many of us? So uh, a lot to talk about on this topic, and I'm sure people will have their own opinions. So, uh, Ian, I'm going to come to you first.
2: So, yeah, I'll start by saying that I am a, a techy guy. I think I think I, so. I measure most of the um, uh, most of the outputs that we can measure in terms of you know, measuring heart rate, measuring power um, as you can now running um, along with pace. So I measure a lot of these uh, variables, but my training is not governed by them. So I've been through phases when that's been the case, where I've run to heart rate zones and I've run, you know, particular paces and so on. But I use them more as an evaluation strategy now and also to try and uh, understand how my body's reacting and my feelings. So I'm trying to associate with how my body feels and using these metrics to try and, uh, help with that and to develop my abilities and skill around doing that effectively. And I think there are very specific places where technology can be really helpful as well, uh, particularly in very long races, uh, when we might be feeling very fresh. So the feelings that we're getting in terms of perceived exertion might not match very closely to what we, what we're learning, which is the majority of the time in training. So we're associating a certain perceived exertion and feelings in the body with a particular level of exertion in terms of the physiological output of our body. I think when we're doing something very long, um, so I'm talking sort of marathon and beyond, I think our the feelings we're getting early in the race, um, can, there can be a real mismatch that can lead to real problems. And I think that's often why we can see people start to have more difficulty pacing races of those distances. So I think, you know, if you can be measuring power and heart rate and not necessarily running to a particular heart rate or power in those events, but maybe setting maximums for the early stages of the race until everything sort of settles in and you're starting to get the feelings that you would normally get in training, then I think we can stop doing a lot of damage that we can potentially do early in very long races. Um, so in ultra distance running, uh, Ironman triathlon, uh, and and even in the marathon on the road where people can feel very good early on. Um, so if you just purely focus on perceived exertion, I think you can be um, over-exerting yourself early in the race. And quite often people are still looking at the... Data they're getting back and thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm really on for a good run today, and they, you want to believe that you can keep that pace going, but whether that's realistic or not, or those power outputs, um because you're feeling really good, you trick yourself into believing that that might be that it, might be your day, but then unfortunately, 16, 17 miles into the marathon, you find out, ah maybe that wasn't the pace I should have been setting off at and and the wheels start to come off. So I think there's a very specific place for it there. Um, But I think also motivationally there can be issues with its use when people focus purely on using metrics to try and impress other people, to link their own uh, capabilities with particular outcomes and, and particular paces in a race. So, you know, if I can run at this... A particular pace um, for a 10k, then I should be able to do this for a marathon. Or if I can keep this power output on my bike in training for an hour, then that means that in a time trial I can do X, Y, Z. So extending training performances um, to race performances, I think, is dangerous because you know that's you only do a race performance when you actually perform in the race. Um, but I think it can be, it can develop extrinsic motivations as well. Uh, in terms of you know, you're motivated by the fact, the responses you're getting from other people to your training data, but not by the performance and enjoying running, cycling, swimming um, for its own endeavour and the performance itself. So yeah, I'm a, a bit of a mixed bag. I think it has its place, and I do use it. But I think there are a lot of misuses of um, of data and technology uh, yeah. in endurance sport.
0: That transfer over to race results and, you know, judging people by data, we're definitely going to come on to that later because yeah. that's definitely we we should talk about. Um, Mike, is it becoming death by data or is this, a, you know, are we adding data or are we adding value? No, we definitely are. When, one of the
1: one of the things I'm learning more and more on this podcast is um, never answer after bloody Ian goes because he gives such good answers. You're not left with much to, to add to it. Um, but I think, so, so yes, there's too much data and too much tech. Um, similar to you, I did my sports science degree in, when the century started with 19. And back then, um, I agree completely what you were saying about being the so-called educated few. And I remember there being an almost overt tactic to upsell and big up sports science so that it spread outside the laboratories of the universities and the realms of elite sport. Now, I think that was good. It was the right thing to do and probably that's been compounded. The fight for survival and status within sport has been compounded by the advances in tech and the accessibility to some of this sports science now. And that's where the waters have got a little bit murky. Um, it has meant it's too saturated with info. Am I a tech user? It's a yes and a no in a very similar way to Ian. I feel very fortunate that I'm the age I'm at because I learned to do a lot of the stuff I've done without tech. So the balance or the sweet spot of maybe applying tech to support and complement what I was doing without it gave me a real nice data. And I think if you look at look at your Tour de France guys like, like Team Ineos, for example, Team Ineos have that sweet spot of being able to apply data to know that if we can perform at this level, this data, then we're untouchable and they don't need to go beyond or b- below that. Now, the average sort of endurance athlete can't can't spend the time or expertise to do that, but I think there are plenty of times there's probably more times now in my life that I don't use data or tech. I just go out and I do run off feel um, but I wouldn't be so fascist about it to say that that's um, anything more unique than my background and experience using. Using tech, I, don't, I certainly don't say people should just disregard it, but I use it uh, very lightly compared to how I used to. In a similar way to Ian, I think more as a probably for myself right now, it's more of a control mechanism rather than a performance enhancer. Uh, but that may be just be the nature of the events I'm doing in recent years. But there's a sweet spot that people should find. It's not a black or white yes or no answer, yeah. but it's, I think it's gone a little bit too far and probably needs to be reined in slightly.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think, and we've talked about this before, which is when you look at data, um, there is if you're using data and using gadgets to guide your training, some of them are gauging the intensity you're working at and others are output measurements. We've talked about this before, haven't we, so... Your heart rate is telling you how hard you're working and your running speed or your power output on the bike is your output measurement. And it's almost a performance. So I still, when I go out running now, I think when I started using gadgets, I got very drawn into that every run became almost a race. So I was measuring my performance Rather than training, I was measuring my performance. What was the power output? How good was it? What was the average minute mile and how good was it? So you you almost start racing yourself as if – and we know that, you know, we've said this many times before, that training is training and your race day is race day, isn't it? It's a different thing. So really the only day when performance counts is on race day. But if you start using output measurements in your training, in effect you are – it's like you're racing or competing against yourself every single day. So, I, I mean, I went back to a, a year or two ago just – When I go out for, if I want to do a a one-hour easy run, I know routes that are roughly an hour, and I'm looking at the kitchen clock before I go out, and I just go for an easy run, and I've got no no gadgets on me at all, and when I get back, I have a look at the kitchen clock and see how long it took me, whether it was an hour five or 55 minutes or whatever, but that's as much as it, because all I wanted to do is run for an hour easy, and I don't want to start looking at my watch thinking I'm 13 seconds per mile slower than I was last time, or my heart rate's a little bit lower, or my heart rate's a little bit higher, and overanalyzing things. And I think we've, you know, to some extent, we're losing that. So we'll come back to you and ask you this question, because I said before when, like you know, Mike's just said the same thing. When I was younger and I started doing a sports science degree, there was this feeling that we were the educated ones and coaches were very old fashioned. And they didn't really know that much about physiology. And it was our job to work with them to educate them. But I still see those same simple basic coaching principles that they were using 20, 30 years ago. They're still using those things with elite athletes now. So my question to you is, because I know you know some runners who are at that top end of the spectrum. You know, what's your view on this? The guys who are at the top end in distance running, for example, are they really techie people? Or are they just following those old same basic coaching principles, 100 mile weeks and so on, that we've been people have been doing for the last 40, 50
2: years? I think there's a range, so I think you see even at the at the top end you see a range, and um, I think the the coaches are probably a bit more old school and still doing the, and still following general principles. It's probably the athletes where you see the differences, and that's probably more influenced by the social group and sponsors and so on who might be pressuring them to put out inf- data. Or you know, about their performances and so on, but also because that might be what their peer groups do in terms of, you know, whether they use Strava and, and put that information and make that information public. And I certainly know of quite a few uh, athletes and including some, you know, right at the elite level that uh, have at time made their made, uh, data public that have now decided not to do that and withdrawn from that because that started to become more of an obsession for them and they, they recognize that. That they were actually more interested in, you know, getting the record for a Strava segment than what the purpose of that actual training session was. And then, so I think you know, very another important skill for athletes to develop is that reflective ability. You know, what was the purpose of my training? Why was I doing that? And are the things that I'm, I'm doing actually facilitating that and allowing me to get the best things out of my training, or the things that I should be getting out of a training session, or is my use of data, the information that I'm getting, or how I'm disseminating that around friends and the the, the responses I'm getting, is that actually getting in the way of the purpose of my training? And if people have got that reflective ability, then they can identify that and address what they're doing. But I think a lot of people are not necessarily um, able to identify that or are probably just not Uh, you know, have not got the awareness or that uh, people are not suggesting that that might be an issue for them. Or if you're coming into a sport and you just see this as the norm and that's what people are doing, then you are likely to just follow suit. And you might not be, most athletes might not be at a level where they know what they're meant to be getting from the training. They're just following the schedule. So, yeah, I've definitely seen people moving away from that because they recognize the the damage that it can do because you become more focused on the performance in that individual session rather than you know what was the aim of that session you know was it meant to be just a recovery run or a steady state run but it ends up you know being something quite different because of the course that you're on or because you're thinking about how people are going to view that performance when it goes out you know on Strava or through some other means afterwards.
0: Yeah yeah. Um, and I just because well because I. When I talk to people about this and say, I just think there's become this over-focus on data, the view I get is that people say, "Are oh, you just old school. You're just old fashioned. I think I'm not old fashioned. I understand sports science. I taught it for 12 years and I get it all. You know, I understand it. I just think that to some extent it's now becoming smoke and mirrors and it is clouding those basic coaching principles. So if you look at elite triathletes, there is... There's some very common things which they do, which is they do a load of volume. They do some hard speed work. It's just that really basic same coaching principles that people have been doing for 40, 50 years. You know, and I wonder whether tech, I mean, part of technology, I think there's different things here. You've got you've got the sports science, the applied sports scientists who are looking at physiological measurements for athletes. And then you've got the commercial side of it of let's sell people stuff you know, let's just sell people stuff. Let's sell them watches. Let's sell them gadgets. Let's sell them apps and things like that. There is a commercial side to it. And I think a lot of that is sold on. You can train smarter. You don't have to do more mileage. You can do clever things and this will make you fitter by doing less. And it's all quality over quantity and it's things like that. And yet, when you look at the the elite athletes, they're all still doing the same things. None of them are skimping on training. They're still doing the high volume, the high quality, all of those things that we've been doing for the last thirty, forty years. Um, you know, they're not using the apps and trying to skip the training and thinking there's some kind of some kind of shortcut. And I think that's the danger with data is that's what it's selling. Um, Mike, yeah. well, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Well, so data is only as good as your understanding and interpretation of the concepts underpinning that data. That's a real. Uh, Valid point that Ross Tucker always makes when he's talking about tech in sport. And that little bit of info sometimes being dangerous. Um, A good example is uh, my brother and all his friends are competitive bodybuilders. Now, Over the last 20 years, of course, all these fancy training gadgets and machines and devices have crept into that world. But fundamentally, the guys who would be, as you said, classed now as the old school guys, they've gone back to the fundamental lift. If you walk into the gym, they look like they're doing what they did 20 years ago. But it's their understanding and knowledge of muscle hypertrophy and Mm -hmm. growth is what underpins the selection of what they're doing. They could go down the fancy tech stuff if they wanted to. They could use all the fancy gadgets, but they'd be applying that conceptual thinking to it. And I think that's in endurance sports where we've given people some information, but if you start picking the brains of a lot of these people, they don't understand the concepts of why they're using that tech or that sports science. And that's when it becomes tricky.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many, uh, Ian, how many elite marathon runners do you think there are that are running less than 100 miles a week?
2: <laughs> well, at the elite level. Yeah. Yeah,
0: not many. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's not changed, has it? Still Lydiard's principles.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think that changed. Uh, things have changed massively at that level. I mean, uh, in terms of the input from sports science, it's probably more around the sort of nutrition uh, and the recovery strategies yeah. and so on. But in yeah. terms of the training, uh, it's probably not trained that much. Uh, it changed that much. Although it, we probably understand the mechanisms a lot more about how those different training modalities work. Mm. And that's what a lot of the research is doing is, is probably understanding the what happens in the middle kind of thing. But the coaches have always been very good at knowing that if I do this with this athlete and yeah. looking at particular athletes now identifying what they need and then saying what that should be and not worrying so much about what all those bits in the middle are in terms of the mechanisms whereas yeah. the, yeah. the spot scientists are very interested in the sort of those mechanisms in the middle yeah but i, I think one one issue uh, one thing that coaches do much better than scientists often is look at the individual and what individuals need and very good coaches can tailor yeah. what they do to particular athletes and bring the best out of particular athletes and that's why for the best coaches for me you always look for people who have had a long track record of success across athletes because any coach can fall lucky and get a particular athlete who is regardless of what training you give them going to be a well-beater. Yeah, but yeah. You know, if you've got 10, 15 years of having successful athletes who are all on different training protocols, yeah, then that is showing that you're capable of identifying what those individual athletes need. And I think because of the way in which science often operates, they're very good at understanding at the group level, so a lot of research evidence is based on group data, so we're looking at what the effects across groups are, so we can say that you know this type of training might lead to this sort of outcome, but it's also very uh, reductionistic as well so we're looking at particular mechanisms at particular times in studies, but not integrating all that information so whereas coaches are very good at integrating you know what what effect is this training going to have when we do that on Wednesday and that on Friday, and also in a month's time, um, and then scheduling uh, all the different components um, of training together. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that we often do in terms of we're taking data and trying to extend that to a performance based on group data. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, does, that, that doesn't, you don't fit that um, association particularly well as an individual, so you're, it's either very easy for you to make uh, those connections between a set of data and a performance, or you could train forever and never actually achieve that performance. But you might be able to, on a particular metric, um, uh, achieve a, a certain level of output. So we've got to remember that it's about understanding yourself as an individual athlete and what those different metrics and different pieces of data can help you as an individual understand yourself rather than looking at, you know, on, on a group level, what does this mean I should be capable of doing? Because that may not be appropriate or it may be appropriate to you, but you don't know because you don't know where you fit yeah. in that population.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I, I, just to go back to one of the things you said earlier, I think you're dead right there. When I look back at these these old school coaches, as the people so call them, and actually when look at them and the way they've operated is that, I suppose in su- to some extent, what I see is that the, the coach would do a certain will will work out that this is a type of training that af- that athlete needs and when they give them that training or uh, you know those interventions that that athlete then improves and they work individual one to one and then a sports scientist will come in and almost add the data or the explanation and say well this is the physiological changes or this is the biomechanical changes and this is what happens and this is why the performance improved and from the coach's perspective it's almost well right, right well thanks for that but I knew he got faster when I did that. You've given me an explanation. You know, it's adding data in a sense, Um, but the coach already knew that without the physiological explanation. They're just filling the filling the gaps in sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes for for me, I think you know, look back and I I almost wish I'd spent more time with coaches rather than with sports scientists when I was younger because I do I do feel that that they're almost the ones leading the way rather than what I was initially told when I was studying for my degree but um but just moving on um the other thing i'm interested as well is data and its ability to predict results so i put a tweet out um uh, about a week ago and the tweet was something around stop asking people what their ftp is and ask them what races they've won so for those people don't understand what ftp is if you're not a cyclist your ftp is supposed to be what the power output you can hold for one hour because there is so much data now and so many gadgets and producing all of these stats. For me, I think there's a shift towards judging people based on data that they produce in training rather than judging them on race results. So from if it's a simple model, training is training and that prepares you to race. And the only day which is really important is race day. Race results are what counts. That's why athletes train. But I feel now there's a growing number of people who almost maybe don't even compete that much now. They just train and produce training stats. So they've got these power outputs or running speed or whatever it is. And people are being judged now by their training figures. They don't need to turn up and race on a Sunday. They're getting credibility and kudos from their data. So we're judging people by data. And does data actually correlate well to results? So, uh, coming to you first on that one, Mike. Um, do you feel that we're judging people on that data rather than by race results now? Yeah, we've, we've,
1: as a society, we've we've started to breed this non-competitive. We've chatted about it in some other podcasts, but you know, um, you're frowned upon now if you want to win. If you are competitive in some circles. Um, the the rise of the social media influencer in the running world is pretty much built on their emotional journey as a runner or an endurance athlete rather than their ability um, as you said then it's it's very much more about um, focusing on someone's journey rather than the goal at the end of the journey so i you know yeah i the role models in the endurance world that I had to, you know, they would have a they would have a room full of medals, which showed that they could perform under pressure and be, work at that gritty edge when they needed to. Nobody really ever asked them what they did in training. Nobody ever cared about that stuff other than the what does your training involve. Um, but you know, yeah, it, it baffles me sometimes to see people put in snippets and uh, fractions of their training data, but. There's no evidence that these guys even apply that to any end goal at the at the end of the day. So um I really I it's something I've really struggled to get my head around in, in the recent years is what are you training for if it's not to compete? And that's not to yeah. win. Yeah. That's that's not necessarily you have to everyone's out to win. You can compete for whatever your goal or destination is. But to train for almost the vanity stats let's call them rather than the outcome stats then
0: yeah uh, that's on the rise yeah yeah i do I, I think with cycling it's i see more in cycling than in than in running but that question asked all the time this people will say to me oh such and such a body's flying his 20 minute average power on the bike uh, on a test he did last week was this his ftp is this and i'll always say, Okay, well, what so what races has he won, or what, where is he in races? Oh, he's smashing it. Is FTP? Is this? And like, well, so what, how are we judging people now? We're we judging them by the data they're producing in training, or are we judging them by what they do on race day? Let's see what happens on Sunday when they compete, because you know the data to some extent is isn't the, that's not the important thing, or is it now becoming the important thing? You know, we're putting more focus on what data people are producing in training than we are on what to race on Sunday, and of course. I'll come to you for this one, Ian. But let's go back 20 years um, when we didn't have Facebook. Steve Jones, marathon record holder. He, the only way we could judge him was when we watched him on the TV on race day. The only way you could judge Steve Ivette or Seb Coe was what happened on the TV on race day, <laughs> because we didn't see the training data or any other data. On a social media net platform, did we? So the only, op- the only people were only judged by race day. So, uh, what's your thoughts on that, Ian?
2: Yeah, I've got one or two uh, thoughts on that. I mean, just to sort of uh, build on what Mike said in terms of um, race day should be what's important, and yeah, and not necessarily being about winning but competing. But I think it doesn't even so obviously not everyone can be competing at the sharp end. We all recognize that. And not everyone even needs to be competing with other people. Um, I think we've kind of lost sight of what the purpose of a race event should be. Uh, And for me, it's, you know, I don't race that often. I'm not a, you know, I'll probably race four times between now and London, and they'll all be purposefully selected as build-up races for that. But I recognize that when I race, I can bring things out of myself. You know, I can get a performance out that I wouldn't get out in training. You know, I know that I can't run at my marathon pace. You know, if I do a long run with eight miles at my marathon pace in training, that's a hard session. Eight miles at that pace is hard. But come the, the marathon, I'm hoping to run 26 miles at that. You know, my 10K pace, you might do that pace at mile repeats in training. But you're not stringing just over six of them back to back together, so so you can judge yourself purely based, you know, compared to your own performances and your own past performances, which, you know, is, is what we so we often talk about ego, people being ego focused. Well, the counter to that is being task focused, where you're focused on and you're motivated by the task itself and enjoyment of the task. And the more we focus on ourselves and our own performances and how we're comparing to our own past performances the more it moves us away from that ego focus and gets us focused on enjoying the event in and of itself. Um, And also that gives a real purpose to a race because that means that when you're racing because that allows you to take your own personal performances to a level that you would never do in training. Whereas if the focus is all on those training metrics and what you can hit for 20 minutes and what your FTP is and then you know, spreading that through social media and the motivation becomes about how other people respond to those metrics, which is kind of the so complete opposite of being completely intrinsically motivated by the event itself and the performance, it's completely extrinsic to the event itself. It's actually other people's response to your training metric that is motivating your performance and I think the world that a lot of athletes are sort of growing up in now is Drawing athletes towards that because that's how everything's set up. You've got these metrics that you can measure very easily. You've got social media that you can spread those very. Easy. You know, most people watches and apps on their phones will disseminate all those data without you even doing anything. If you if you've got the settings there correctly, every session goes out. But we can't fool ourselves that we're not aware at a conscious or definitely a subconscious level that that data is going to go out publicly. So we're always aware of that when we're training, um, which is drawn us towards those extrinsic motivators, which from a, you know, a wealth of research, we know that it can be very detrimental in the long run in terms of motivating us. Um, and, and I do wonder about the influ- the move towards influencers as well. And I, I wonder on an individual basis how much those influencers, you know I'm not saying all of them, but are they motivated by that jelly themselves or are they motivated by the attention that they're getting because of the social mm-hmm. media presence they've got, which yeah. again, you know, one is very intrinsic, the other is very extrinsic um, and also, you know, people are, are following a lot of advice from those people maybe in terms of what they're doing in sport, which, you know, we I think going back to those sort of reflective abilities, we've always got to be critical about whose advice we're taking and why we're taking it. Um, and, and where we're getting information from, and I think a lot of the best advice, you know, comes from books, and it takes time to read. And you, you read books, and sometimes you think, Well, yeah, that didn't really tell me a lot, but then you read another one, and you think that's brilliant, that's given me some great ideas. It doesn't tend to come in 120 characters on, on Twitter.
1: Um, and you also, with these influencers, you see that even some of them start out on a real sort of honest path and a journey and it's it is a really influential story and there's a transition almost and as you say the message then becomes i don't even now know now because you're probably getting a a financial reward for for having that reach i don't even know if the message you're pushing out is actually your message anymore now or are you selling your soul almost but um, Mm -hmm. but i i've seen a there's four or five, I won't name any, but there's some real run influencers that I've followed, particularly on Instagram in the last 18 months. And, you know, they're not qualified coaches. They have no coaching background and they're pushing out or answering questions on training from a very limited knowledge base. And there's going to be a a receptive audience on the, on the flip side of that. That's going to be sucking it all up. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and, and you know, it's done with the best of intentions, I'm sure. But, um, it's just, it's just, it's muddying those waters even more when it comes to all of this stuff.
2: The, they're very powerful forces, those, those motivators, and when the environment's set up as it is, at the moment it draws towards those extrinsic factors, you know, there's it, very few people that could probably resist those, but a lot of the effects are happening. at so You're not consciously aware of it happening and you are initially you know they would initially be motivated by that journey but when all these extrinsic motivators come in such as financial reward, reward but also you know social reward in the way you know people are responding to your message then it's inevitable that a majority of people will get drawn towards putting messages out that bring those rewards mm-hmm. you know
1: i am um, sorry i i okay. had to the um national running show next week. We've got a treatment stand up there and I'm I'm speaking about recovery up there. And that's the third year now we've been there. And whereas the majority of speakers before were Olympians and real bona fide names in the industry, you just see this transition now that the majority is your everyday influencer. The companies that were sponsoring these athletes to be on their stand to draw sales to that stand They've gone, there's still the Olympians there, but it's now this other batch of popular people, let's call them, who've popped up. And they're going to be advocating everything from the the simple tech of shoes and other stuff and nutrition products to more complicated tech stuff. Which is coming from a real unfounded base of knowledge and that conceptual understanding that we chatted about before. Um, And I say it's, you know, there's people making careers out of this stuff now. Yeah and yeah. and then and then, yeah it's it, it's something I I'm struggling to get my head around it all as far as the
0: the reach that these people are starting to, to gain. Yeah. I guess that's the world we live in now, isn't it? It's not, you know, for those brands, knowledge isn't power, social media following is power. Yeah. It's
2: people, the of it.
0: Yeah. People are people are buying people now. It's yeah. it's
2: a commercial decision, isn't it? But like you say, the very elite still get the support. But yeah. the problem I think for our sport is that the people that are in between, the ones that are the semi-elite or you know just about making it, are no longer getting as much support because that yeah. financial investment from sponsors has shifted elsewhere. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, on, on, on a complete aside, uh, I was reading yesterday. You know, Conor McGregor, the MMA fighter. Yeah. So on Instagram, he's got thirty-three and a half million followers. And he makes ninety six thousand pound every post he puts on Instagram. It's crazy, wow. crazy. Wow.
2: So <laughs> That's I was going to say, hard to resist the yeah. powerful forces. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I'm just going to go back to something Ian said earlier on, and kind of go back on track with this about uh, racing and training, because uh, uh, again, I'm just fascinated with this whole. You know, the, the societies we are now with the social media and how that's impacted on things. And again, interestingly, you're saying there that we've gone towards influencers and away from, so the people who were at that sub elite level don't get sponsorship anymore because brands will, don't want to sponsor elite runners. They want to sponsor people who've got lots of social media followers because they get more, you know, more back from them than they do from those elite athletes. Um, and I guess, I'd go back to what I said earlier on about, um, you know, Sebco, Steve Ovette, and all those kind of people. The reason that elite runners got sponsorship is because you would just see them on, on you know athletics on a Wednesday night or on a Saturday on grandstand or whatever you'd see them on TV, and only the people winning races and competing in races, they were the people that were idolized, weren't they? They were the people that reported in magazines, Athletics Weekly. It was just who done what and you know listing all the winners and everything's changed. The whole media's changed now away from those people and uh, and I guess that's. you know, interesting in terms of where the sponsorship shift is. But Ian, you said something else earlier on, which is how we're kind of losing sight of what a race should be. So I suppose, you know, when we look at elite athletes, there is training and there is race day. And training is all geared towards race performances. And the reality is if you want to do well in sport and endurance sports, the only day which is really important is race day. That's the basic principle. But if we're losing sight of what race day is, then vice versa, we are losing sight of what training is. Because I know people in who will I give you a couple of examples when we're when they're training, um, they will rest for certain sessions in training because they know they're going to publish the data and those figures need to be as high as possible. So everybody goes, Wow, that's amazing. Look at the figures it's produced. I know people that when they're on a training run, will run very quick and they'll pause their watch and have a couple of minutes break and then carry on running really quick. Because when they post it on Strava, it shows a faster minutes per mile. And I've seen this happening. I've been there when it's happened. I see people manipulating data in the pool, swimming really fast, taking bigger recoveries. So their swim data on Strava looks like they swim much faster than I know they can't swim that fast. So we're manipulating data. So whilst We're losing sight of what racing is. We're also losing sight of what training is, you know, because training has become, in effect, the racing. And because of this, I've seen a few people now who race less and less frequently. And my theory on this is once you start publishing data saying, look how good I am. Once you start publishing that on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever on Strava, you are building a persona of how good you are and people are giving you kudos and saying that's amazing you're pushing amazing wattage you're running really fast the problem is on sunday when you've got to turn up to a race and you realize you're going to look a bit stupid when you get hammered so i'm interested i've watched a few people do this and they race less and less and then when they race they usually just jog round at the back, or they don't race. Or there's always a. I did a tough session yesterday, so I just ran steady today. And it's because they've created this persona of themselves, of how amazing they're, how how good they are, then they're, they're boxing themselves into a corner. So it's no wonder they're turning up on race day, you know, ang- anxious about taking part in any event. And then you know, there's always a reason why they underperform. Um, and I've seen a few examples of that um, and uh, yeah, just curious so your
2: thoughts on your uh, thoughts on that one Ian No, I think well there's a couple of things in that it, it, obviously, yeah, because they're publishing the data, people in that situation are yeah, they're, they're gravitating towards what gets them the best responses, so they're manipulating what they do in training because that gets them a better and better response yeah. and as we all know, we all have that sort of wonderful period where Training improvements and performance improvements come very easily, um, and then we start to plateau off and level off, and then it becomes about can you maintain performance or can you find that, you know, one or two percent that allows you to still get in bits of improvement. Um, but that's very hard and very difficult, isn't it? And it doesn't impress people. So you have to do other, you know, if that's you motivated, then you have to do other things to uh, to impress people. But I think definitely in terms of when people that are putting themselves in that situation do turn out for an event they're putting an enormous amount of pressure on the cells whereby they probably have to self-handicap as you so you have to come up with some kind of excuse so i've not been feeling well did a hard session yesterday or they'll probably go out at the pace of the sort of performance level that they have now tried to associate themselves with and then There'll be an injury or they'll blow up and then there'll there'll be some other uh, external factor to explain that. But it becomes more about trying to um, maintain that, um, that level of performance that you've linked to you as a person rather than your performance on the day, which again is sort of uh, an extrinsic factor, isn't it? So I think the other thing to consider is that when we're doing things in training, we are much more in control of them. So we can choose what time we train. We can choose um, which performances we want to publish, potentially. Um, we can manipulate other sessions, so we perform particularly well. In a race, it happens on a set day at a set time with other unpredictable factors, such as the weather, other athletes, how are you feeling on that day, and you've got to perform at that point in time, regardless. You know, So... They're all very anxiety invoking factors as well, that lack of control. but they're things that the best athletes can can manage very well and learn to deal with and I think another unfortunate outcome of the sort of the factors we've talked about today is that people are not developing their abilities to cope with that it's It's more about you know bringing the attention on themselves in an environment where they're much more in control, which is the training environment. And not on the race environment and how they perform in a race, because that's something that that's somewhere where they don't perform very well and where they don't get the sort of social reward that they're perhaps looking for. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, we need to try and change the tide a bit and, and move people back towards the importance of the race and, and what the race is meant to be about.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it is uh, as a coach, one of the things that I. Over the last two or three years, one of the things I've become very fascinated with is the difference between training and racing and presuming that if we give people a training plan or you follow a training plan or you buy a training plan, that that will correlate for race performance. You know, and for me, training and racing are two completely separate things. You know, I always say to people that strength, uh, strength and conditioning is a really important part of being a rugby player. But just because you're going to do some strength and conditioning work four times a week in the gym doesn't mean you're going to play premiership rugby. The two things are worlds apart. So training is just conditioning and racing is a completely separate entity. And I wonder whether the focus of the data and the stats and everything I see is the focus is very much towards training. Very rarely do I see a focus to educating people, teaching them how to race well. All the focus is on training. So I'll come to you for this one, Mike. Are we teaching people how to train and ultimately letting them down because there isn't enough focus on how to race well? So I don't think we're teaching
1: people to train. I think that we're selling to people because more people train than race. So the market to sell the data and the implements for gathering the data is larger if we're trying to get people who just want to do it recreationally. Of yes. course, it's designed for people who race, but um, we've just focused it on there. So, so we the, the wording and the terminology and the advertising behind it isn't now to race better. Now that's a separate, slightly separate issue to what you're saying about are we teaching them? Um, I think the perfect balance of people using data and tech were people who already raced. And then they've gone and taken the tech, applied it to their training, and you'll find a large majority of these people don't wear their tech on race day. They just go off feel on race day. They trust the tech has helped them get prepared for race day, but they understand that there's too many variables out of their control for race day to be governed by that. Unless you are in something like the Tour de France team with Team Ineos, where they have more control of the uncontrollables. But for Joe Average, most of us, then, yeah, there's too many variables. Um, But people are now, they're racing. For those who do race sometimes, it's the data and tech from their training determines how they race. I can't race this Sunday because my tech was telling me X, Y, and Z. Or I'll race within myself because I'm governed by this data and this tech rather than just using it as an implement so i think if anything it's putting handcuffs on people rather than training them or teaching them to not race um it's a case of get rid of the tech when it's race time and allow people to express themselves when they race rather than helping them race yeah most most of us you know it it's simple fight or flight for most of us when it comes when the gun goes off it's just it's just race and go for it um in whatever capacity that you need to. But, yeah, it's more of a, a limiter than a
0: restrictor rather than a lack of teaching, in my eyes. Yeah. But I think a race day itself, it's a very different beast, and it's something that training can't prepare you for, the anxiety and all that kind of stuff. And it always amazes me, the number of people. So I just see, like, locally, if I'm on Facebook, and Ironman UK is quite local to us. So there'll be loads and loads of people locally here will enter Ironman UK. After Ironman UK, same time, every year... Week after or the day after they've took part, more people will be disappointed than happy with the performance. Either that or the, it's only the ones that are disappointed that go on Facebook. I'm not sure which one it is. But all I see is disappointed posts. Okay? So, maybe they have to go on to feel, feel because they've not done the time they want to do, they have to go on and explain it. Common one to see, the first one is always the same, oh, I messed up my nutrition. Messed up, or messed up my pacing. Or blah 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 so they, they wanted to do 12 hours and they ended up doing 14 hours or something as an example and it's always things like that messed up the nutrition messed up the pacing such and such thing happened in the swim or whatever and you know there's a whole list of things but i see more people disappointed with performances than actually happy with performances so there's two things here my first question is well, why did you think you could do 12 hours you know a lot of time we wouldn't have done one before so where's this 12 hour figure come from oh well Well, my mate did twelve hours last year, and his FTP is two hundred and fifty-six, and mine's two hundred and sixty. All right, okay. So there we go. There's the first thing. This plucking this race time out of the air based on some kind of data. What my mate makes FTP as, or I train with my mate, and my average running training is this. You know, and it, you know, race days are completely. Race days the only day when you really get found out, where you really have to bury yourself and go into that hole, where you really have to deal with the anxiety. There's a whole huge host of things that you will never experience in training. So that's the first thing is where, where do you even get that time from? And then the second thing is all of these reasons why um, why they did 14 hours. What becomes quite clear to me is that most of those people, if they truly did mess up on race day, they never needed a training plan. What they needed is a psychologist, you know, <laughs> because it's the same thing time and time again. It ain't that complicated to pace yourself right. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated to eat what you're supposed to eat when you're supposed to eat it. And these simple things just get messed up time and time again because they just can't handle the race day environment. You know, when they have a bad spell on the run and they stop and walk, there is no plan B, no psychology plan in there. So they just give up and they walk the rest of the marathon. You see them walking the whole thing. Uh, you know, so, so all of those things that happen on race day, which which they training will not prepare them for. But my view fully on this now is that people need a psychologist most of the time to get the best race day performance. It's not a physiologist or a trainer; it's a psychologist they need. And handily, we've got one here. So, Ian, coming to you, what's your view on that?
2: <laughs> well, I think uh, the the things you've talked about there underpin a lot about what we've already said because people that you read any magazine you read any book you speak to anyone about racing and the importance of psychology and you won't find many people that say that you know psychology is central to performance best athletes have always you know consistent athletes are the ones who psychologically are very strong but it's so much more important in racing than it is in training so the more we're doing that just focuses on our training is not Developing those abilities. And are we are we training in a way that is trying to develop those capacities so that we can then execute on race day? Are we setting up a, a race plan so we're developing and testing those strategies, those abilities, and the the way in which we're going to cope psychologically with those events, so that you know coping with that a race event is just a step on from what you've already done. So you've 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 had a strategy, you've implemented it, say in a half Ironman. And then that's moved on from a, um, an Olympic distance and a, a sprint. So you progressively are smaller races building up to bigger races. But the focus is on, you know, psychologically, you know, what me- mechanisms have I used? What methods have I used to cope with those situations? And then that is part of your race strategy. So, uh, and the aims of the B and C races so that you can develop those abilities. And then you evaluate how well those things worked and where you maybe fell down and what you need to develop more. And then you can then develop those skills and practice those things in training so that, you know, that psychological capacity is something that you're developing in in training. Whereas when we focus on purely on metrics and how that appears to other people, we're not really developing those psychological abilities at all. It's purely about those physiological characteristics and the outputs that come from physiology. So it's taking us further and further away from an important element of race day performance. And as we mentioned earlier on, when we actually come to the race, because we're trying to link ourselves with being a potentially a better athlete than we are, and we're not accepting that we might not perform at that level, or the, the athlete we are when everything comes together, and that's our one goal that we're aiming for on the day. When that starts to come undone, we've got nothing else there. Um, whereas, our ultimate aim, if we go back to the importance of what a race should be about, uh, the importance of racing and what a race should be about, it should be about getting the best out of yourself on that day consistently from one race performance to the next. Not what is that one amazing race that I can tell everyone about because that was the one day that I managed to get everything managed to fall into place. Can I get close to you know, what I was capable on that day, six races in a row, then you are psychologically, you're clearly getting things right. Now, that might not, one race performance might not be as good as the next, but everything isn't going to fall into place every time. But if you can still have the best race that you could have on that day, that when all those physiological characteristics and those external factors such as the weather all do coalesce, you're in a position to capitalize and get that amazing performance out on that day. Yeah. Um and and ultimately that's what we should be seeking to do on, on race day. But I think, yeah, again we're we're moving away from that, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: That's it. I, I just want to um back to something you said then because I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head and this is what I've been saying to people recently, some of the people that were coaching. This being the best you can be on, on race day. So training is one thing and then racing is a, a separate entity. And when you turn up, what I consistently see is people not performing to the best of their ability. Now, if we take eight-man triathlon as an example, if the best of your ability is 15 hours, or 13 hours, or 10 hours, it doesn't really matter what standard you are, but it's absolutely criminal if you've trained to a certain level where you know that you're capable of 15 hours, and on the day you end up going around in 16 and a half and 17, or you know you're capable of doing 12 hours, and you end up doing 14 and a half, the most important thing for me that most age group athletes can do is spend time thinking about what is it that you need to do to be the best that you can possibly be, given your fitness level on that given day. And that's the one thing where I think a lot of people fall apart and end up disappointed with their race results. Mike?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I think um, the combination of what you both said there was is perfect. it's um, failing to meet your potential when there's no obvious reason for you not to and um, if if we're starting to enforce an obvious reason by manipulating training and um, using training for other means rather than to facilitate you making your race goals then that's that's the mistake that's being made with tech
0: yeah yeah And it's fascinating, you know, with, I mean, me and Ian have had this conversation with the the psychology side of it, is that even when you just look at the basics of people, um, you know, if if they have to follow a training plan for a marathon or a triathlon or an ultra or whatever they're doing, can they plan the week out just so they can actually get the training done? Well, that's psychology, really. Can they be asked to get up in the morning to even do the training session? Well, that's psychology. If you tell them to go out for a really easy run... But they get, feel they have to run it faster because there are other people with them that they want to compete with. Or they feel that they're going to post it on social media and they want it to show that it's a higher speed. So they run it too quick. Well, that's psychology. And then you ask them to do a hard session and they just haven't got the mentality to push hard enough to do the session as hard as it should be. Well, that's psychology. And then they turn upon race day. And the anxiety gets to them in the morning because the anxiety, their head's all over the place and they're not doing what they should be doing. That's psychology. And then they set off and some guys come past them so they throw the pacing strategy out the window because they get dragged along with everybody else. Well, that's psychology. (laughs) And then they have a basic nutrition plan to follow and they forget to follow the basic nutrition plan and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. They start to suffer towards the end and get to that point that you never get to in training. The last six miles of the marathon. The last 13 miles of an Ironman marathon, the last five miles of an Ultra, that's something you'll never experience in training, and your head goes and you've had enough, so you stop and walk, and there's no deep plants you never get going again. That's psychology. And how much of that psychology, you know, everything really is underpinned by psychology rather than the physiological aspects, isn't it?
2: Yeah, you it's, know, it's the difference between that, you know, what your training data is saying you should be able to do and what you actually do, is by yeah. and large, that's, uh, well, assuming you got your nutrition right, but even that's influenced by psychology, as you mentioned there. But that, that difference is, you know, the psychological factors and whether you can cope with all those other issues and actually, you know, put into place everything you plan to do to get the best out of yourself based on what you know, your training has said you can do. And I think, you know, we've talked a couple of times already about who we take advice to and who we listen to. I think there's always this assumption that, People who are faster and more knowledgeable, they obviously must know something better because they're faster. And uh, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Because obviously we've all got different levels of natural ability, uh, and some people can run very well, but aren't necessarily training well. Aren't necessarily, or they can run fast, but they aren't necessarily running well. Um, and I think you know, if I'm looking for people who I admire and who think probably give the best advice, it's the ones who can consistently time and time again perform well and they can, they're can they the ones that have probably got something that they can tell you in terms of psychological preparation and how to execute on race day because they're consistently managing all those factors effectively and some of the um, techniques that they're using skills that they're developing in training um, are obviously working for them on a consistent basis and you can probably you know learn a lot uh, from those people whereas the people that there might be other people that are faster Occasionally, or doing very well in training but maybe not executing on race day then maybe the people that you know we maybe need to be a little bit more critical about the advice that we're getting
1: mm. but
2: mm. but yeah it's that, it, that is that gap isn't it between the training performance and the race performance 90% of that is coming from psychology
0: psychology yeah yeah Mike anything from you any thoughts to finish um Just generally, you know, I I don't want
1: certainly my input to sound like I'm completely anti-tech. Tech Tech is is useful. It can be very beneficial, um, but it's part of a jigsaw puzzle. And sometimes there's more important parts of that jigsaw puzzle for certain individuals than others. Um, And if you get the basics right, then tech can help you. Tech can help you a lot. But um, uh, I'll finish with a a quote from um, another one from... Ross Tucker, where um, he said something along the lines of, don't search for the penny on the floor when there's a tenner sitting on the table. Mm. So so tech for a lot of people might be the penny that's on the floor and they need to focus on the tenner on the table and get the bigger rocks right first yeah. before they worry yeah. about the tech.
0: Yeah, and it is true. And again, let's think about the penny on the table. So the penny on the floor and the £10 on the table, was it? For me, sometimes the penny on the floor is all the chatter on social media. And the £10 on the table is, what are the top guys doing? Because ironically, the top guys, when you look at them, they're not doing what people are suggesting on social media. You know, the elite runners, they're all doing massive volume. It's all really simple stuff. There's nothing complicated about it. They're all running 100 miles plus a week. 80 of them are probably slow, and 20 of them are some form of interval or hard work. And that's, you know, there's just really basic principles, isn't there? You know, so... um, and, and, and that, that penny on the floor is all the other distraction and the, you know, what can we get that'll cheat or give me that little advantage and stuff. And, uh, and it's not, it's not a complicated sport, is it? Long distance running is not a complicated sport, you know. Um, there's one thing I want to finish with, uh, which is uh, very important to me. Are these shoes banned now then or what? Cause I bought a pair. And I'm <laughs> going to be really good if I can't run them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, they're not.
0: <laughs> not, not yet, certainly. They're not banned, no. no not yet. Okay, so there's, no, I think
2: it's just, again, some uh, newspaper headlines to sell papers, I think, at the moment. Um, but, yeah, no decisions have been made as yet. But the next
1: the topic that that brings into is if they are banned for racing, well, then do you still use them in training to get the benefits to then apply to your racing? So... There's the yeah. only other episode to go down if they do get banned.
0: Well, I could use the shoes and then publish the data on Strava, how fast I'm running in the shoes, but that's going to ruin my Sunday race performance, then, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know? What I mean? The question I need to ask is, if they are banned, do I get a refund?
2: <laughs> and can you? Can I go back to my one minute of tweets because that's just reminded me of a tweet actually from last weekend. So I won't name any names, but it was an elite athlete who had a very good run in Valencia. Yeah. Uh, and he posted on Instagram some pictures of himself running last year and the year before and said the official photo's out, out yet. And I was thinking, is that because you don't want pictures of you wearing your vapour flies? And then people <laughs> thinking, oh, he's only run well because he was wearing those shoes. Because there's certainly some uh, some of that going on where people don't want to put images out of that show what shoes they're wearing. So uh, yeah, um, that, that ties in very well with our uh, discussions today, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and it also ties in with uh, Mike's uh, uh, quote there about the penny on the floor and the ten pound on the table. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: yeah. If the penny on the floor. Right. Don't worry about them. Have a look at the ten pound on the table. And do yeah. Training. Oh, <laughs> oh you're <laughs> doing 40 you, pounds yeah, on the table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so have you, have you worn them yet? I, I've worn them, but obviously with, with me because I'm at after post-operation with my hamstring. It's really hard to, to judge because, um, I'm not fit anyway, you know, so I'm just coming back from injury and stuff. So I'm probably not running fast enough to warrant wearing them, you know, but, uh, it, interestingly, just on this topic as well, I, I've seen people saying that there's potentially more benefits to slower runners than there is to yeah. faster runners. Yeah. But then i am equally seen saying, well, unless you're running at a certain speed, they're not beneficial. Can you, uh, shed any light on that, Ian?
2: I think uh, I've seen more on the former than the latter. I mean, well, you, I think so I think you obviously need to be, uh, you, you're personally going to get more benefit as you go towards your faster pace. I don't think yeah. there's a set pace where you start to get benefit, but obviously if you're running more towards your race paces, then you'll get more benefit than if you're doing these yeah. run. Um, but I've certainly seen more evidence supporting the, fa- and even some of the analysis that's looked at Strava data and so on, so yeah. big data, um, has suggested that you know it might be six percent advantage for slower runners as opposed to maybe three or four at, at the sharper end. So there certainly seems, and then some of the lab studies have, have seen, found similar in terms of more benefit for slower runners. So yeah, I've seen more uh, in that regard.
1: There's starting um, to get there's starting to be a mixed message though about slower compared to bigger and heavier. So the yeah. slower runner is fine. They might have more advantage, but there's a sweet spot for body type and weight, all to do with the force of the compression of the, um, form and its recoil values. Yeah. So a bigger runner, or if you're, if you're not big enough to compress the form enough, or if you're so big, you compress it and it doesn't have a chance to respond, then it's going to be detrimental to you. So there's a, there's a body type and a body weight sweet spot, but speed wise seems to have a bigger advantage on the slower people. Oh, which yeah. makes sense, it would make sense, you yeah, know, yeah.
0: yeah, right, well, I'll keep trying, and I'll keep focusing on the penny on the floor, <laughs> <laughs> super, um, very much enjoyed our chat today, guys, so, uh, Ian, are you up at, you up at the record this weekend?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm planning on, heading uh, up the M6 tomorrow, yeah, for the record, all
0: right, cool, well, I will see you there tomorrow, yeah, yes. to it. yeah, um, well, uh, and Mike, have a great weekend. Weather's looking good, to so get out and do some MDS training.
1: It is, yeah. We're getting again it, to the point now that um, there's light at the end of the tunnel from the long dark runs. I'm starting yeah. to see, you know, uh, things are starting to get real. There's a lot of actual prep work that needs to be done. Ready now? We're only nine weeks out or whatever it is. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it now. I'm ready to. I'm not ready yeah. to go, as in ready yet, but. Um, but yeah, the big miles are getting in the bank, and um, things are starting. The back-to-back runs are feeling a lot easier.
0: We need to have a we, we need to have a podcast where, like mid MDS,
1: you know, one yeah. of the overnight
0: caps. <laughs> yeah. Link up, link. That'd be brilliant. We'll brilliant. plan that. We'll work that yeah. out. Work that out. Super. Well, have a great weekend, Ian. I'll see you tomorrow at Penambleside. Yep, and yep. Uh, thanks again, guys. Look forward to talking in a, the next week or two. Take All care, time. both. Thanks. thanks. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at The Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit the theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.